Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. I want to read for us these final verses from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And I want to try to help you understand the context in which they are written. And then we'll see what they mean and how they apply to us as worshipers of the one true God. This is God's word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. Our God is a God who, in every sense of the word, gives. Our God breathes life into existence. Our God, by the working of His Spirit, brings dead hearts to life. Our God shares. Historically, in the history of the church, we have seen God at times being personified as a singer, singing creation into existence maintaining the movements of the planets within their solar systems in the vast expanse of space, creating, sustaining, giving. And in particular, in this third rock from the sun, he has planted his image bearers. He has stamped his image upon them, not physically, for God is not physical, but In spirit, he has given us reason, he has given us hearts that feel, and he has given us affections, he has given us will, volition, just as he has. As Greg prayed just a moment ago, he has made us only a little bit lower than the angels set here upon this planet to rule and to reign and to bring things into subjection to his will. And because God knows all things and is surprised by nothing, he made a world that would necessarily involve costly redemption if these image bearers would have any hope of salvation and reconciliation to their creator and sustainer. And even more so than this creator God 
singing the world into existence and maintaining the movements of the planets in which he has placed them and more than sending the rain and creating trees to bring oxygen and sustaining the seas with teeming life and planting animals on the dry ground to not only amaze us but to feed us and all the vegetation to sustain us and nurture us. More than any of that, more than any of those things, he sent his own son. Planting within the womb of a fallen woman by his spirit, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with the Father, who would take on the limitations of human flesh and keep all the laws that we refused and were unable to keep, and dying as a substitute bearing the wrath of God and raised victorious, who now is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. In redemption, in the person and work of Jesus, we see in its foremost sense God sharing. So whether it be in creation or whether it be in redemption, our God is a God who delights to share. And we can say that he delights in sharing himself. That's what he's like. Satan, the opposer of God and all those allied to him are the opposite. Satan and his horde They are hoarders. They are selfish swallowers of mankind. They are those who seek to take rather than give. Their hearts are twisted by self-worship, by self-concern, and they will swallow and tear and claw, and steal, and destroy for their own evil, pernicious pleasure. Our God is a God who delights in sharing the best things, the chief of which is himself. All those things opposed to God with Satan as their head are those who are the opposite, who by contrast delight in only hoarding to themselves and doing so by stepping on the heads of others to gain. As those who are experiencing new life in Christ, we saw this at the end of our section from last week, verses 22 through 24, that we have been given the new self, those of us who have trusted Jesus, we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds by God, and the old self has been put to death as we have been united to Christ. We are to live increasingly like God, who gives, and not like Satan, who steals. Our new life in Christ is to be a demonstration that we are being reconciled to God 
who is characterized by sharing himself rather than our old and former way of life in which we were characterized by hoarding and stealing and drawing attention to ourselves at the expense of others. You see, the design of redemption, as we often say around here, is not that one day we get to go to a celestial city and have a showcase home on the corner overlaid in gold and precious stones. That is not the primary design of redemption. The design of redemption is that we are restored to God, not just in the world yet to come, but in this one. And as we are restored to God, as we are reunited to Him, we are transformed once again into His character, into His image. And what we think about and how we act how we dispense our resources of time and talent and treasure will increasingly look more like the God to whom we are being reconciled. In other words, now that we have been united to Christ in a death like His and have been raised to new life in a resurrection like His, we can't stay the same. The design of the redemption of Jesus Christ is that we are made holy, That is to say, we are set apart to God. We are made unique. We are going to look different. We are going to look like God. And if Ephesians declares to us anything, it's that God delights in sharing His best gifts, His Son, so that we might be brought back to Him. We, We get God back. Because God shares willingly and sacrificially without reserve. And so now that we have been united to Christ, we are to increasingly live that way. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 through 32, contrast the old way of self-love, of self-concern, at the expense of other people, with instead new life in Christ by denying ourselves and our pleasures to a degree, giving up natural self-concern that we might live out of concern for others, denying ourselves that we might love others. And as we will see next week in verses 1 through 2, and I'm sorry that you're not going to get a Mother's Day sermon. We just don't do that around here. I I love the mother of my children. I love my own mother. And so... We'll honor you next week, but, but next week we're going to talk about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and talk about love. And really, if we're being honest, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 could be summed up with this, love other people that you might show your love for God. That's what Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 are about. Love other people that you might show your love for God. The God who first loved us, the God who shared himself with us. Let me illustrate what this old life looks like. You perhaps occasionally will watch cable television and on, can we still call it that? I don't know. When I grew up, there's like three channels, right? And I was the designated channel turner because I was the middle child. 
I was the abused middle child. So I had to get up and click the station over. You had like three VHF and one UHF, or maybe it was opposite. Now we've got like, you know, 15,000 channels. So I don't know if we call it cable television or not, but on cable television, there are a couple channels that have these shows about compulsive hoarders. Have you ever watched these shows before, any of you? They're the kind of shows that can make you a little bit ill because they're a little bit gross, but it's so compelling, it's like you can't turn your face away from it, right? It's kind of like when you pass an accident on Highway 23, which, by the way, has like 19 accidents every hour now. Um, you, you want people to be well, but you can't turn your head from it, right? That's, that's kind of like these hoarder shows. And so they'll have like 5,000 cats. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Um, and and 4,000 of them they've lost. And then as they start pulling away all the, the hoard, they're, they're all buried under the hoard. Like there's skeletons and carcasses of cats and then the rats that go along with that. And, and they're just really nasty and gross. And they keep everything they've ever been given, like every receipt that's ever been, you know, spent out of their bank account. And they have old toys and old wrappers. And, and there's no way that they can even use the restroom anymore. They can't cook anymore. Uh, their, their refrigerator hasn't been cleaned out in five years. I mean, it's just, it's gross. And so generally speaking, what happens is they've got like a daughter or a son who who complains to like the county and the county comes in and condemns the house or gives them a notice that if they don't clean it out within, you know, two weeks or so that they're going to be kicked out. And so then they bring in psychologists and they bring in hoarding experts and they bring in these junk cleaners and they start clearing out the house. But, but the person who has done all of this hoarding is usually not super thrilled about this, right? They've lived in the hoard for a long time and as nasty and gross as it is, it's become comfortable for them. And what happens over time is that it has separated them from the people that they love. So inevitably, sometime during this hoarding episode, you will find a tearful daughter who will approach her mother or father and, and plead with mother or father to stop this hoarding. And inevitably, the mother or father who has practiced all this hoarding for all these years will, will be kind of grumpy and say, but I need that receipt from 1967 where I bought that slinky because if I don't have it, my life will fall apart. And oh, there's Fluffy, even though she's like half eaten by a rat. And, but I'm sorry, I just can't stop. And then the child cries and now they're 27 and they get in their eye rock and they drive away. And, and, and it's really sad. And you see how a person who has devoted themselves to, to hoarding unto themselves has separated themselves from other people and brought great damage, not only to themselves, but to others. I mean, they're living in an unhealthy environment that's probably going to kill them early. And if nothing else, they have separated themselves from such a degree from the people who love them and, and with whom they should have a good relationship that there's no relationship at all anymore. That's what sin does. We lead these lives where we hoard unto ourselves and we live in the muck and the disease and we're numb and we're comfortable with it. But it not only is destroying us, it, it separates from others. But then Jesus came in and he exposed our tendency to, to hoarding to ourselves, to being self-concerned, to, to destroying ourselves to being numb with our surroundings and exposing how dirty and destructive it is and instead bringing us back to life and, and reconciling us to God and to each other. That's what sin's like. But, but we still have these tendencies, don't we? You don't, you don't have to teach a boy or a girl in their growing up years to be self-concerned. They're naturally that way. 
But said little boy and girl grow up to be teenagers, 20-year-olds, and then married with kids and careers and spheres of relationships. And those tendencies, even after redemption, remain. And so Paul writes to this church that they will be aware of their tendencies and live counter to them. And as we start today, I do want to encourage you that if these sins still do characterize you from time to time, and let's be honest, we all are met in these verses. I want to read to you a simple quote from one of my favorite current writers named Jared Wilson. Would you marry a bride if you knew at the altar she would cheat on you every day of your marriage? Would you do that? Jesus did that. Jesus was not surprised when his people sinned an hour after they received him by faith. Jesus is not surprised that even ten years beyond our redemption, we still aren't perfectly faithful. And just as God, through the pen and actions of Hosea, demonstrated that he would be faithful to a faithless bride, Jesus is faithful to his often faithless church, me and you. So if you see yourself in the mirror of the word today, don't lose heart. Jesus knew you would, and he died for you anyway. So approach these verses with faith. Faith that your Savior Jesus delights in forgiving you and me when we are unfaithful. And because he has reconciled us to the Father, we can repent because we are not condemned. So take heart, but have humble hearts as you explore these verses today. We saw in verses 17 through 19 last week that we must refuse to return to the old ways before our renewal. And then we saw in verses 20 to 24 that now in Christ, the old nature has been removed and the new nature has been given. I want to just touch on verses 22 through 24 one more time. In our ESVs, which many of you are carrying, the translation into English is put like this. We are to put off our former self in verse 23 to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and in verse 24 to put on the new self. And I said to you last week that that's probably not the best translation out of the original language. Now, I want to say to you that whenever you hold the Bible that you have in your hands, and I know you well enough to know that you, generally speaking, have really great translations, we can say this is the Word of God. I have the Bible. Occasionally, we have editors and translators, really smart scholars, who do their best with the original language to carry out the original idea and thought of the original language. So if I ever say to you that it could be, or a verse could be translated a little bit better this way, please don't lose confidence in your Bibles. Occasionally, however, as we go back to the original languages, which were the languages in which the scriptures were written, the Old Testament and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic and the New Testament and Greek. The original writings of the authors, we call them the autographs, were inspired. Then copies were made and then we received the translations that we have today into our particular vernaculars. So please don't ever lose heart if I ever suggest to you that 
that a verse could be translated a little bit better in a little bit different way. But the point I was trying to make in verses 22 to 24 last week is that rather than translating these things as imperatives, actions, commands, things that we must do, I suggest to you that in the original language that perhaps a better translation might be that these things have been done to us. And we saw in Romans chapter 6 last week that Paul does argue that point elsewhere. Our old nature has been removed. We have been united to Christ, not by our own doing. This is the work of God. And as we saw previously in Ephesians chapter 2, this is in keeping with this very letter. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not our own doing. We also saw in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 that God has even created the good works that we should walk in them. So I don't believe that Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 through 24 are saying to put on the new man. That has been done for us. Or to put off the old man. That has been done for us. But today, in verses 25 through 32, he does command certain things. Things we shouldn't do and things we should do. And so we will look at today old life and sin, who we were formerly, self-lovers, the self-concerned, hoarding to ourselves at the expense of others, and now conversely, new life in Christ, sharing, giving, fighting sin for the glory of God and the good of others. The first contrast that comes out is in verse 25, in which Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The contrast here in verse 25 is deceit versus truthfulness. When we were young, we lied a lot. As we get older, we become more sophisticated at it. But even those of us who know that one of the Ten Commandments is that we should not lie, we still do in certain ways. I think perhaps the way that we do it most often is we're just not very honest with people. We don't really let people into who we really are. And we live very often with a facade, a facade that all is okay, all is well, but inside we often aren't who we seem to be. On the outside, we might look kind, jovial, but on the inside, we might instead be mean, sad, angry. We often wear masks, but we are not immune to old-fashioned lies either, are we? Most of us who are sitting here today who have been Christians for a while good, conservative, theologically conservative, Bible-teaching church, we would not want to admit if we were really put on the spot the last time we told an old-fashioned lie. But I would guess it probably wasn't that long ago for a lot of us, where we were caught. We missed a deadline at work. Our spouse almost caught us looking at something that we're ashamed of. I could go on. 
but in an effort to self-protect, in an effort to, to keep up appearances, we lie. Justifying the lie because we think that if the person who finds out the bad thing that we did or the bad stuff that's inside, they'll run away from us. Instead, Paul encourages these Ephesian people, people who, who were professional liars. Most of these people were saved as adults, rescued from sin as adults, and they had become professional liars. And those old habits die hard. They do. But Paul says you can't live that way anymore. Instead, you must speak the truth. And notice he says, with your neighbor. And Paul is being very clear here. Falsehood and truthfulness affects the fabric of relationships. Where there is a lack of honesty, relationships will suffer. Which is why you can't wear masks with each other and it's why you can't hide from each other. You've got to tell the truth to each other. And, and if, if we are living collectively as those who are experiencing new life in Christ, we can do that. Because there's no condemnation for you. And there's no condemnation for me. Therefore, you can be honest with me. And I can be honest with you. Because if Christ doesn't condemn me, if Christ doesn't condemn you, I shouldn't do that to you, nor you to me. So we can be honest. We don't, we don't have to posture and wear masks. We don't have to lie and cover up when we get caught. Because the balm of healing that comes from confession and repentance and renewal in Jesus is worth far more than self-preservation. I say to you today that new life in Jesus, which has been granted to you, is your greatest treasure. It's not your reputation. It's not your stuff. It's not what you might lose if you are caught or exposed. You have Jesus. And as we live together in honesty, we point one another to him, our greatest treasure. Paul comes back to this idea of a body. At the end of verse 25, we are members one of another. And just like an injury to a body brings schism and hurt and harm to the organism... So too does that happen to this body when there is lack of truthfulness. So be on guard when you see your propensity to hide and self-preserve and justify deceit. And I dare say that all of us do it. Don't allow untruthful excuses to cover up your deficiencies, but instead bring them into the light, into the community through whom the light of Christ is shared and born, that we might be renewed. Old life, deceit. It's numbing and it's destructive. New life in Christ, truthfulness. This brings life. Anger and mercy. Paul says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. In other words, it's okay to be angry, but be careful how you display such anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Holy indignation? Yes. There, there can be. 
If somebody strikes one of my children, you can bet I'm going to be angry. And, and I might not be able to, in the moment, keep it righteous, but, but it could be. If you steal something from another, they have a right to be angry. If you hurt another, they have a right to be angry. Those who have been significantly harmed by others through perverse abuse, they have a right to be angry. But unfettered anger can turn into sin. There's a difference between righteous anger and rage. You saw this with Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. Cain was a tender of the ground and he brought vegetables. Abel was a keeper of the sheep and brought a sheep. When you were growing up, it was always said that you should bring animals to God when you sacrifice, not vegetables. I didn't know what to do with that as a seven-year-old because I didn't have either. But that wasn't the point of the story in Genesis chapter 4. The point was that Abel brought his best lamb. But in the original language, Cain brought the afterthought. They weren't his best stalks of corn, his best potatoes or whatever they were. He gave God scraps in certain senses, and Abel gave something that cost him something. Abel gave something that he delighted in, and Cain gave something that was expendable. God delighted in Abel's gifts, and he was not pleased with Cain's gift, because he saw beyond the vegetables into Cain's heart. And Cain was very angry. And God speaks to him. They didn't have a written word back then, so God just showed up and talked to him. He said, Cain, don't do this thing you're considering. Don't harm your brother. He said, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to, to have you. He likened it to a, a cat, like a cat of prey who sits in a tree and waits for a gazelle to walk underneath and then pounces on it. That's how God likened sin. He personified it that way. But Cain didn't listen to God. He gave in. And in his hot anger... In his rage, he slayed his brother and killed him over a sacrifice. Sometimes, as we think about the homicides that we hear reported on television or as we watch crime dramas, we, we find people who get caught and, and there's really no motive more than the fact that they're just mad at somebody. unfettered anger, rage will destroy. And if we let it grow in our hearts, if we let it fester in there long term, then it turns us into ugly people who can destroy. Most of us would never take a rock or a club and kill another person, but we can be angry with our children, devouring them with our words, belittling them with our speech, justifying it all the while because they have annoyed us. They have made our lives inefficient. They have not considered our needs and our rights. We do this with our spouses. We grumble against them, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. Angry that they don't meet all of our expectations and then such anger left unaddressed, unfettered rage destroys marriages. 
where there's lack of forgiveness and friendships and relationships, this body can be torn apart. Because disappointment and disillusionment often then leads to anger unaddressed and relationships are torn apart. Some people would take this absolutely literally, don't go to bed mad at another person. That's hard, right? I used to hear this a lot back in my early days of counseling training that, that we should counsel husbands and wives to never go to bed mad. But then you get married, right? And you realize that you're mad with some measure of frequency, especially early on when you're figuring things out. And if you, if you have that rule that you never go to bed mad at each other, sometimes you won't sleep, right? And then it's like the next day you've been up for like 48 hours, and then what do you do, right? Then you can't stay awake. Sometimes that doesn't work. I would suggest that maybe we don't take this absolutely literally, but there's a principle here. As much as lies within you, at the end of a day, try to lay your anger down. Or at the end of a season, maybe lay your anger down. There has to be a terminus. There has to be an end point. You've got to lay it down. And if we are living together in honesty, verse 25, therefore I can be honest with you if you've offended me or you with me. And then hopefully at the end of a day, a literal 24-hour period, or at the end of a season, we lay that down and we bury it. Because what happens when said anger is unaddressed long-term, when there's no terminus, when there's no end point? The devil gets in that spot and he tears relationships apart. He tears churches apart. And don't be naive, my beloved. He will do it here. He will. What's the opposite of anger? Paul doesn't say the the opposite of, he doesn't address the opposite of anger, but I think by implication, the, the opposite of anger is mercy. Guess what? If you're married long enough, like more than an hour, if you raise children long enough, more than an hour, if you're in relationships more than a day, guess what's going to happen? The people you love are going to hurt you. If some random guy at Kroger takes the last bottle of juice that I'm getting ready to buy off the shelf, I'm going to be kind of frustrated for a while, but it doesn't bother me that much. But if my wife hurts me, if my child, who I live with all the time, still struggles to listen to me after I've told him the same thing 19,000 times, if you keep having the tendency to annoy each other in the ways that you do because you're still sinful, guess what? Don't be surprised. It happens. What's the opposite of anger? Because anger implies that you're going to bring your wrath to bear on another. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring brokenness to a relationship. You're going to mete out punishment on another, perhaps, because of your anger. What's the opposite of that? Mercy. Delight in showing mercy. You know one of the ways to fight anger? Delight in mercy. And you can practice that. You practice that by remembering that, that you've been shown mercy. I'll mention this just briefly at the end of our time today, but in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of the king who had much, so much, 
inestimable worth and, and, and wealth. And he had a servant who had not been faithful and owed him a great debt. Most of you are familiar with this story. And when the reckoning day came and the king brings the man in, the man pleads for mercy and says, I can't pay. And what does the king do? He releases him from his debt. He shows mercy. Then, of course, you see this man walking along the way. And on his way home that very day when he had been given his liberation, he sees another man who owes him quite a sum, but nothing in comparison to what this man owed the king. And then he exacts tribute from him and puts him in prison until he's able to pay his debt. King finds out about it, punishes him for it. The debt which we owe God, he delighted. Not just in wiping away, not just in taking off the books, but in paying himself. Don't you realize that's what Jesus did? God didn't just excuse our sinful debt. Jesus paid for it. And yes, we hurt each other in substantial ways. In marriage and in children and in this church family. We do and we will. But the debt that we owe each other is nothing in comparison to the debt that we owe God. And yet Jesus paid it. So, so the way you fight anger, perhaps the best way to fight anger, is to remember the gospel and to delight in dispensing mercy. To be ready to do it and, and to do it willingly. Anger, the old life, mercy, new life in Jesus. Thirdly, verse 28, we aren't to steal, but we're to share. One of the Ten Commandments, of course, don't steal. Rather, this person who used to steal, they're to work, doing honest work, not scheming, not having an angle on another person, but working with a purpose. What's the purpose? End of verse 28. So they can share. This means that the stuff you have is to be used not only to meet your own needs, because you have to pay the bills, but to be used for another. Do you see how Paul draws such a sharp contrast? He could have said, don't steal work. What does he say? Don't steal work so that you can share. That's the opposite, right? We said at the beginning of our time together today that, that God is characterized by sharing himself. All those opposed to God under the leadership of the original sinner Satan, what do they do? They hoard and swallow and destroy for their own gain. To illustrate this, perhaps some of you, maybe back in Brit Lit in high school or college or something like that, read Dante's Inferno. Maybe some of you. And in the ninth circle of hell, this is all the things that Dante dreamed up about this horrible, evil place. And the ninth circle of, of hell was Satan. And it was a place that was worse than fire. It was frozen. And it was perpetually kept frozen because Satan, this chief demon, kept flapping his wings incessantly for eternity and kept it frozen. And, and in this frozen land, there was a lake, and he himself, Satan, was trapped in it. But Satan, or Lucifer as Dante called him, had three heads, a sort of evil personification of the Trinity, and in his three mouths, he consumed for eternity three persons. 
first two were Cassius and Brutus, the two people that were complicit in the assassination of, of Julius Caesar. Dante believed that, that the empire of Rome was a great gift to humanity, and, and Julius Caesar was sort of the epitome of that. So Cassius and Brutus would be punished for eternity by being chewed by Lucifer for their treacherous act. But in the middle mouth was Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. And whereas Cassius and Brutus were being swallowed feet first, Judas was being swallowed head first with claw marks on his back because Satan delighted in devouring him. You remember the story of Judas? Judas thought he could gain something by betraying the Son of God. He got 30 pieces of silver for it, ended up hanging himself. Satan used another for his own gain, thinking he could destroy the work of redemption that Jesus sought. And Judas, of course, was deceived, and Judas was swallowed and destroyed. Now, Dante made all this stuff up, of course, but the truth of the matter is that's what Satan does. Satan uses, Satan swallows. Satan seeks his own. Formerly, as children of the devil, that's who we were, we were characterized by being children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Now instead, we're sons and daughters of God, and we are to be the opposite. Rather than stealing, we are to share. This one that Judas betrayed was getting ready to lay his own life down to redeem those who would trust him. Jesus came to love the world. Judas loved only himself. Judas got a little bit of treasure. Jesus inherited the earth and made us co-heirs with himself. Formerly we stole. Now we are to share. So be careful with your propensity to hoard to yourself. Be careful with your propensity to withhold things that others need. Instead, use the resources that God has given you to bless others. Our church has a long way to go in learning to give our stuff away for those who desperately need it. Fourthly, formerly we were corrupt, particularly in our speech, and now instead, conversely, we are to practice gracious speech. If the first three didn't touch you, and I don't believe that's true, because they touch all of us, this one definitely does, doesn't it? Verse 29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, those in our church world who are completely against profanity, and then all like the Christian profanity, you know, like we never would say the bad words, right? But we don't even say the words that get even close to those bad words, right? Like, Like, heck, and I could go on and on. Like, we don't even say those. Like, that's what corrupting speech is. Corrupting speech is the word heck. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's being more general here. The corrupting talk that Paul speaks about here in verse 29 is anything which might damage another. What's the opposite of that? Those of us who have new life in Christ, those who formerly were characterized by using our mouths to destroy others. Speaking the truth in love, right? We just saw that in Ephesians 
We are to bless others at the right time in the right way. Words are powerful. James talks about this in the second chapter of his epistle. This word corrupt in the original language was a word that would have been used for fish that had gone bad or rotten fruit. There was a stink to it. It was distinct. It was stinky. It was offensive. And it was hurtful. Instead, those of us who have new life in Jesus, who have been blessed by the by the word himself, Jesus, who spoke words of grace to us, the one who spoke the world into existence, then came and spoke words of grace to us, which have been recorded and left for us in the Bible, words that give life, words that save. We are to use our mouths now as newly created people, as the renewed image bearers to bless other people. It's amazing how the wrong word at the wrong time in the wrong way can absolutely just tear another person apart. When we were kids, and there's some kids listening today, perhaps you heard or have recently heard that sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt us. That's not true. Words hurt. Conversely, words can transform It's through the spoken word or the written word that we are saved. It's able to save our souls, according to the New Testament. The Bible does that. So words save. Words encourage. Words expose and point to righteousness and treasure in Jesus instead. Words affirm. Words bless. So I encourage you. Don't use rotten speech. Not just the bad words that you so fastidiously avoid, but don't use speech that hurts another person. Do the opposite. If you're characterized by by the kind of speech that tears down, do the opposite. Bless. If it's not natural for you to affirm because you're a natural cynic, go out of your way to bless. It's easy to be a cynic. It's hard to be an affirmer. It is easy to be a pessimist. It is hard to notice the good in another and then go tell them. It is easy to be a critic. It is far more difficult to notice the good in another and affirm what the Spirit is doing in them. If you're a natural cynic, pessimist, or critic, go do the opposite. Bless through notes blessed through texts. Don't call anybody because that's weird these days, right? Like, we don't talk to anybody on the phone anymore because that's, that's what creepy people do, right? Like, we screen all our calls. So, so short of that, text somebody. Send them a note. Catch them after a service. Encourage them. Do that for your spouses at home. Do that for your children. This is especially important in our families. We'll see this more as we get into chapters 5 and 6, but It is so easy to notice the negative in the people that we live most closely to. It is hard instead to bless them. It has been said that for every criticism that we bring to another person, there should be 10 affirmations. I dare say that none of us are close to that ratio. You want to fight cynicism and pessimism and criticism? 
bless instead and do it at the right time and do it in the right way. Fifthly, we shouldn't grieve the Spirit. The Spirit who is sanctifying us. In other words, don't resist what He's doing in you. He's transforming you in these four previous ways and others. Instead, seek progress in sanctification. Yield to Him. Walk in Him, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. As He's exposing your deceit, your anger, your tendencies toward hoarding and corrupt speech. Admit it. Confess it. And instead, walk by faith. And He will bear His fruit in you. Don't grieve the Spirit who is not just leading you to being more equipped to glorify God, but is leading you to joy. My brothers and sisters, when you, when you resist the Spirit, Paul talks about quenching the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5. When you do that, you are not only causing all those around you to have a diminished picture of the glory of God, your joy is being sapped. So don't grieve the Spirit. For in yielding to progress and sanctification that the Spirit is responsible for, God only, God gets glory, but but you get joy. So this is not just for His good, it's for yours as well. And lastly, don't be bitter. Bitterness that leads to wrath and anger and clamor and slander, malice. Instead, be kind. It is easy to be bitter. It is hard to be kind. Tim Keller said some time ago, worry is not believing God will get it right. Bitterness is believing God got it wrong. It is easy to be bitter at the circumstances in life and then take it out on other people. Maybe you didn't turn out how you wanted. Maybe, maybe your life didn't quite turn out like you wanted it to. Maybe, maybe another person that you know still well is responsible for part of that. That leads you to anger and clamor and slander and justifying malicious actions. Instead, be kind. Just like God was kind to you in Christ. This is characterized by tenderheartedness being ready and willing and desirous to forgive each other. Bitterness and all the corresponding sins, old life. Kindness and its corresponding graces, new life in Christ. Two applications and we'll quit. First, we must practice regular faith-filled attention to God's Word. This leads to faith and repentance. How do these old ways get exposed through the word on Sundays in your small groups discipleship with another brother or sister we must practice regular faith filled attention to God's word what does the Bible do for us? it's like a light Psalm 119 it's like a surgically sharp sword Hebrews 4 it's like a mirror James 1 which shows us who we are, that we might change. You will not, I will not, we will not lead lives of faith in Jesus, the the one who delights in giving us himself, and therefore repentance from the old ways if we are not in the word. You can't live on the fumes of a Sunday sermon. We must practice regular faith-filled attention to God's word, for in it our hearts are exposed 
and we are led to faith and repentance. And lastly, we must embrace our church family, Christ's body, as we saw at the end of our section a couple of weeks ago. We must embrace our church family, Christ's body, as indispensable in our salvation. The church doesn't save us, but through the church we are transformed. Just like the Bible, the church is a means of grace. It is in and through the church that holy character is produced. Because how do you know that you're angry unless you're hanging out with other people? How do you know your tendency toward hiding and deceit unless you're with other people? How do you know your tendency to hoard unless you're with other people and so forth and so on? What does God do? He puts us in a communal context to expose these sins and to lead us to new life, to the renewed character. It is in and through the church that holy character is produced. The old ways exposed, the new ways brought in. And as a means of grace, the church is used to transform us. So, be in the word. Be active in each other's lives. And through these means of grace, the old ways are brought to light, into the light. And because there is no condemnation, we need not fear. They are driven out by God's Spirit, and instead, new graces are planted in a beautiful garden of new life, which one day all of us will inhabit, is brought forth. May God be gracious to do this in us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take these words, I pray. May you show us the old ways, and may you instead point us to Jesus, the one who knew that we would not be faithful the one who at his metaphorical altar was not ashamed to bring us to himself as a bride. So we thank you, Jesus, that you did not withhold yourself from us. You did not keep us from yourself, but instead you brought us to yourself knowing full well that we would continue to struggle with all these things and more. And I pray that in your great mercy you will expose these things this day and transform us one more degree and that you will continue to do that work in us and through us for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.